And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Kellen Flukiger, author, podcaster who had a near-death experience and encountered God, and today we're going to learn about it. Kellen, thank you so much for being my guest, and welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Some people might talk about those kinds of experiences. Uh, well, they talk about it however they do. My my take on it is it's very sacred. It changed a lot about my life and gave me some really powerful things that I use in the work that I do now to help people manifest their true selves and do what they really want to do in the world, add good to the world is the way I describe that. All right, Kellen. Well, if you don't mind, can we start on the day that it happened and go from there? Well, yes, but I'm going to back up just a little bit, like a week before. Joy and I, my wife Joy and I went on a cruise, which we didn't hadn't done before, and it was in the Baltic Sea. We visited St. Petersburg, which, yeah, we won't be doing that again anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we, uh, at the end, we were in Oslo, and I got sick uh, and started having a bad fever. And we flew home the next day from Amsterdam. That was Tuesday, and the fever got worse and worse, and we got home on Tuesday afternoon, and we live in Canada, and they have walk-in clinics here, so I could have gone to the doctor, but I kept thinking it's just an awful fever, so it'll go away, and so Wednesday, Thursday, I stayed in bed, and by Friday, which was the fifth day, and it matters uh, later on why it, that was day five, so on day five of this experience, uh, I realized this is not getting better. (laughs) This is not okay, so I went to a walk-in clinic, on Friday, and they had a sign on the wall, and I knew that, don't come in or let the nurse know right away if you have a cough or whatever. And this is pre-COVID. It's 2018, June of 2018, so coming up on four years ago. Anyway, so I told Joy, my wife, to go in ahead of time and tell him that I had a cough and whatever. The nurse came out and took one look at me and said, you can't come in here. There's nothing we can do for you. Go to the ER. So I must have looked awful. But anyway, so we drove to the University of Alberta hospital and, you know, you go into the emergency room and depending on how busy they are, it might be an hour, it might be two, it might even be three before you get into whatever. And in 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I didn't even know they had private rooms in the ER. It's usually those curtainy things, right? I'm in a private room with a door, and 10 minutes later, a doctor's in there. I mean, they were all over me. So um, <clears throat> I thought, oh, this is not good. They told me, we're going to admit you right away, and, and we just need to find a bed. And then they came back, did some more tests and x-rays, and where had you been in Europe, and had me tell the whole story several times, of course, to several different doctors. And I sent Joy home because we have dogs and cats, and I was going to be in the hospital, so I told her to come back Saturday morning, and we'd see where we went. And as the Friday afternoon went into nighttime, they kept coming back and telling me worse and worse news. They came in and said, well, at least you have pneumonia in both lungs. We don't know, but something else is wrong. And they came back later and said, well, we're going to have to put you in the intensive care unit. Uh, Okay. And then they came back a little while later and said, yeah, we think we're going to put you in biological isolation. So think hazmat lab. Mm -hmm. Okay. Double doors, airlock, you know, like I'm the Andromeda strain or something. Okay. And then they came back the last time and said, "Um, is it okay? Do we have your permission to intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? 
what? Uh, okay. So after that, I went into meditation. I'd been a meditation practitioner all my life and was, you know, skilled at it. So I started to sink into meditation. And as I, as I dropped in after a little while, I could feel my body and spirit separating, like coming apart. And it was, I never felt anything like it before, but I knew that's what it was. And I was going down here really quickly. So when I, I came out of meditation and I picked up my phone trying to send Joy a message. And by this time I was trembling physically. I was crashing basically. And I sent her a text that had three lines. First line said, I see you. The second line said, isolation slash intubation. And the third line said, I may be dying. And she didn't see that. She was asleep. This was after midnight at this point. And about 2.30, she got the call from the hospital that you never want to get in the middle of the night. Uh, hi, this is the hospital. Are, are you coming? And then she saw the text. Sometime right after that, uh, during that time, my heart stopped and I died. During that time, I awoke energetically, spiritually, and I was in a horizontal position like I was in the ICU. But the room was gray. The walls were gray, and the ceiling was gray, and the floor was gray, kind of like photo card gray, very nondescript. So I couldn't really tell how big it was. Everything was gray around me. But over my left shoulder, I could see a door. And it didn't have a door in it, but it was a doorway. And I had this desire to be at the door, and so I was there at the door. And I was leaning on the door jamb, kind of on my right shoulder, <clears throat> looking across, and I noticed that the other side of the door was white. The light wasn't streaming through, but it was white on that side and gray on my side. And leaning on the door jamb on the other side, right there, close enough to touch with someone else. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to come home? And I suppose, I don't know why, but I knew I was talking to God. I knew what the question meant. I knew what the doorway was. I, I, I got, you, you just know, okay, oh, holy crap. Okay, do I want to come home? And <clears throat> it wasn't a panic. It wasn't frightening. I had always expected, because I'd had a lot of struggles in my life and stuff, that meeting God would be a terrifying thing. There was no such thing. It was very quiet. In the coaching profession, I'm a coach, they talk about holding space, which means allowing people to have freedom to think and be in a space. You're holding space for someone. It occurred to me at that moment that never in any universe has there been space held like there was there after that question. So we talked about what I'd done in my coaching practice and what I, who I was trying to be in the world and some of the books that I'd written and talked about my relationship, joy, and all the things that we had planned to do, and I just got this feeling inside of me that I just wasn't done. I wasn't ready. I didn't want to. Um, not out of fear, not out of anything. It's just that I'm, I'm not done. So I said, we talked about it for a little while, and I finally said, I'm, I'm just not done. He said, okay. And that was the end of that first conversation. <clears throat> now, the next day, and I'm, and I'm quite sure that's when they were able to restart my heart. 
I don't know that because we don't have a record of I don't know how long my heart stopped, but I'm quite confident that's when my heart restarted. The next day, I was back at the door, and we were the, the question of the previous day didn't come up. That was already decided, and there we were chatting again, and this time he said, well, what are you going to do here? Since you've elected to stay, what are you going to do? And so we talked about my mission. My mission is to help people understand who they really are and help them overcome barriers and the things that coaches do. Like I think athletic coaches help their athletes perform better, and I help people do that with their businesses and their life and their projects and everything else. So I I said, well, I, we talked about all those kinds of things, and then I had an experience that uh, if you've seen the Jodie Foster movie Contact, where the aliens beam down some instructions and they build some weird machine and then she drops through it and takes off, it was that's the closest thing that I can have experienced to to uh, to what happened and because I always refer to that movie about two weeks ago, my, the four year anniversary of this is coming up in June. <clears throat> about two weeks ago, my wife and I watched that movie again. Because I wanted to remember if my reference to that was accurate. And it's funny because when that scene came toward the end where she goes through the wormholes and meets whatever, I wept because of the consistency of the memory of the power of that thing. Anyway, I felt like if I had not been in a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated. Uh, I was witness to majesty and things that I... We don't have language to describe, but I came away with four absolute knowledge pieces. The first one is, number one, every single one of us is a divinely created, intentional uh, being. There is no question about that. There is no accident. There is no maybe, what if. Every one of us is intentional, created, intentionally created by the divine. The second thing that I knew for sure was that every one of us has gifts, talents that we were given and that we developed, but that we had, we came with gifts and talents. The third thing that was bulletproof, clear and obvious was that we all have mission, purpose that we not only knew, but that we agreed to and that we were stoked, we were excited about before we came. And the fourth thing was that all the help we need is available from both sides of that door. And I said, since that's true, and it, it's occurred to me many times since then, that in a situation like that, you might say, well, if that's true, but in that situation, you don't say if. I said, since that's true, why, why do we mostly settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. He looked at me and he said, because you don't believe. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, like facepalm. Duh. I, I didn't say duh, but it felt like that. I thought, oh, okay. 
So since we had been talking about what I was going to do, I asked, well, how can I help? What can I do to help with that? Because, you know, settling for crumbs is far below what our potential is, what our opportunities are. What can I do? And he said, well, glad you asked. So what came after that was a framework and principles about how to change things that we believe. Because we, we end up constraining our lives, what we try, what we believe is possible, what we create, by what I call your B-deep. And that stands for beliefs, definitions, experiences, expectations, and perceptions. I also call it a context straitjacket. Because all that crap that happened to us before forms a context. And it's what we th- how we think life works and what we think is available to us and possible. Like we didn't sail until... Be- you know, before we realized the earth was wrong because we thought we were going to fall off. So that was a context straitjacket until it wasn't. And we all live in context straitjackets, you know, limited by what we believe is possible, available, what our capabilities are. And we limit ourselves in dramatic ways because of that. So <clears throat> the, the thing that came was a, a framework, a set of steps to change, change and challenge those beliefs. And so that second conversation was really long. Like it felt very long. The th- and that was, then that was it. The third day when I came back, uh, same setup, is at the door, leaning on the door jamb. I was really excited. I, I felt vibrating, buzzing. I was repeating over and over in my mind everything I'd learned and everything I ha- understood in the context. I was really excited. And the third day was one question again. <clears throat> he looked at me and he said, <clears throat> are you sure? And I felt like the, wi- like the wind had almost been knocked out of me because I thought, what do you mean am I Sure. Am I stupid? Am I missing something? All this is going on in my mind like, holy crap, am I sure? Am I biting off more than I can chew? Like what? And I sort of felt like I was hyperventilating. And, uh, you know, so anyway, we talked about every way I could think. Am I biting off more than I can chew? Am I up to this? Uh, you know, am I stupid? Am I missing something? Like what? And the the assurance that I... I heard and that I felt from that was that that I would not be abandoned or left alone, that all the help I needed would be there to do that. Just, are you sure? And so anyway, finally, after we talked about it from every way I could consider it, I answered and I said, I'm sure. Okay. So nothing was said, but it, the conversation ended with the finality that I knew we were done. And after that, I was in a coma for a total of two and a half weeks. So that would have been the third day. So a couple of weeks later, I think I was in a coma for 17 days. So a couple of weeks later, I came out of the coma, and I could remember all of the details of the conversations, the framework, and everything, just like they were written in fire on my heart, my mind, my intention, and I was mumbling and trying to tell people in the hospital about context and about all that stuff, and I'm sure I sounded like a nutcase. But um, that, so that was it. That's what happened. 
and later <clears throat> I got out of the hospital a month later in July. And then by October, so August, September, October, I couldn't walk. I'd been in a coma. I'd lost 35 pounds. My muscles had completely atrophied. I had to drag my legs out of bed to start with. Uh, it, it's, it's horrifying what happens to you in that state physically. You just, I was completely flatlined. I had been in good shape. There was never any time in my life when I couldn't hit the floor and do 40 push-ups. I've done a lot of martial arts and everything else. When I got home, I couldn't walk, and a few days later, I decided to see if I could do a push-up. I got down on the carpet on my on the floor, and I couldn't even get my nose out of the carpet. And it's zero, completely flatlined. But anyway, by October, I'd written the first book, which is Meeting God at the Door, and it is transparent because the cover's green, and so my green screen's showing through the book. And then I also wrote that whole framework in a companion book called The Book of Context, so though, and because it really wasn't, this was about the experience, and this one's about the framework and stuff that I learned in that second conversation. So I use those principles in coaching, and I only do one thing. People ask me often, "What do you do? You know, for vacation and fun?" I live fun every day, from first breath to last breath. My commitment for 2022 is to help 10 million people to discover develop and serve with their divine gifts. I mean, that's it. The podcast I have, nearly 700 episodes, is titled Your Ultimate Life. And it's the premise you can have a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy by serving with your divine gifts. So that's that's the story of what happened. Oh, the interesting piece is we talked to the infectious disease doctor after I came out of the coma and <clears throat> about what I'd had. And, you know, in COVID terms, we talk about mortality rate of 2% or 3% or something like that. He told me what I had had a 10-day kill rate of 100%. Hmm. He said, so, uh, of course, you died. <laughs> like, it kills people. What I had was a necrotizing MRSA superbug in both lungs and in my bloodstream. It was so aggressive that it attacked the plastic tubing that was in my neck. They had to pull it out of one side and put it in the other and... You know, that kind of thing. So that's what I had. That's what happened. It put me in a coma for two and a half weeks with that experience on the front end when I crashed. Well, thank you for sharing your experience, Kellen. You talk about a divine gift. And sometimes after experiences like you've had, people have new gifts or cognitive changes, which may even be considered like psychic gifts. Have you noticed any other changes after your experience? You know, that's a fabulous question because in October, after I wrote the books, by then I could walk and I had a speaking tour. I was going to four different places <clears throat> to speak. And in one of them, I spoke to a mastermind of about 50 high-end high coaches, like a very high-end sort of mastermind. And I, I told them the story and I talked about, I spoke for about an hour, an hour and a half. And when I got done, I want to, there was time a little bit for Q&A, and one of the ladies said, so what's the biggest difference? You know, kind of a normal question, but I hadn't really prepared for anything. So I started thinking for a minute about how to answer the question, and while I was thinking, I heard my mouth open and say, I no longer experience fear. Hmm. And so I thought about that a lot, and... As a consequence of that, 
I wrote another book, which was kind of follow-up to the Book of Context, called Walking Without Fear. And someone asked me once, what, what do you mean? What, what do you mean you don't experience fear? And the answer is really simple. It's not complicated. It may be incredible, but it's not complicated. What is there? that I now have to be afraid of. Like nothing in this world could strike fear into me in any way, shape, or form. So I no longer experience fear. And that is a really real benefit. As I work with clients, when you work with someone, we all live, or most of us live, with a worry about what other people are thinking. I call it the Wittot fungus. Kills more people than COVID. W-I-T-O-T, and it stands for what I think others think. And I don't have that. And so I get to be honest, loving, and powerful with people in coaching in a way that I wouldn't have dreamed before. Because I, it's not an, an, an oppressing arrogance, like, I'm not afraid... It is simply a, a absolute peace. I, I am at peace. One of the things I say is I am, I am that I have no internal conflict. So I don't know that that's psychic. There's one other thing I, I said later, the next day or something to someone, when I was talking about that context straitjacket, I described it this way. I, I said, when I meet people, I see them in their context straitjackets. It's like I can see the bubble of beliefs that are holding them and helping them settle for crumbs in the context of that conversation. And I can also see that they're transparent and flexible. And my goal is to help them if they want to. I can't make anybody, but to, to at least consider the possibility of that flexibility and that they are choosing to settle for a fraction of what's available. So I, I don't claim gifts of seeing future or predicting events or doing whatever. I'm just gleefully satisfied to be able to help people understand who they are and give them the kind of love and encouragement that will help them to choose to be what they can be. Do you think that conquering of fear all stems from conquering perhaps the biggest fear of all, the fear of death? I'm certain that that's a, a big piece of it because we fear death because it's unknown. Some shrinks say that all fears ultimately trace back to a fear of death, like pure public speaking. You know, you're going to be embarrassed so badly you effectively die emotionally or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I mean, I the fear that I had innately of being bad, rejected, not good, or anything else evaporated. And I've noted so many times afterwards, I, I didn't think about it at the time, that I used to be scared of the idea of meeting the divine because of how horrible of a person I'd been. But it was so evident by its absence when I thought about it afterwards. There was no... There was nothing. There was peace. There was opportunity. There was infinite possibility. And so I no longer fear the divine. I have felt the love of the presence. I have seen at least a piece of that place. I have understood to a degree 
to the context of our creation and the opportunity and possibility that we all have. And so it's allowed me not only not to fear death, but to look at every person in their eyes and to love them without even thinking about it because I see them as a divine creation, even if they're living far below their potential. I mean, in my earlier life when I struggled with depression, I had problems with addictions. I was in and out of rehab, a whole bunch of other stuff. In the the second life that I had, which ended in 2007, 10 years before this event, I had another event that wasn't an NDE, but a divine intervention to help me get straight, sober, and change my life completely. So this was kind of the 10-year anniversary of that. It was almost 11 years, but plus or minus a few minutes, the 10-year the 10 year anniversary of that huge life change. So, yeah, probably there's a piece of death. There's a piece of there's nothing to be afraid of. I've seen it. I, I now feel like I'm working for a good boss but with nothing but love as the power. And the second word I'd write about is forgiveness. I've written 16 books, and the one I just finished in December was titled Forgiveness, A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power. It appears that after your experience, you wrote these books pretty quickly. So that makes me think that you were able to assimilate and process the experience quickly. Is that true, or are you still processing it today? Both are true. I was able to be a, a, a scribe of what happened and to write down what what I heard in the book of context as the framework for changing beliefs and what I heard or, or what I saw and experienced in the in, in the, the conversations and also in the in the meeting God at the door I wrote what went on from the outside and I titled those chapters. So now I'm going to tell you what happened while I was in a coma, and it's not out of my mouth, obviously. Joy told me because she lived at the hospital. And so I wrote, this is what happened to me, and this is what was going on in the outside world during that time as well. But so the, the continuous processing is I reread the book regularly, and it reminds me of exactly what happened and I experience things again, and I feel the truth of those experiences, but new layers of nuance, of power, of understanding, of connection. Like I've reused the book of context, those principles over and over and over again in new ways, different ways, as appropriate to help people understand that they're limiting themselves with these beliefs and they don't have to. And what if you, like, what else is possible to believe here? You know, and, and to help them recast those. So both, I wrote them quickly. I wrote what I what happened as a as a scribe, and then the the meaning, power, and understanding continues to unfold, and I expect it will till I draw my last breath, for real. Since you're still assimilating it, how are you still changing? If you still are, and in what ways? It's a fabulous question. How I'm still changing is the power of my own beliefs like understanding where where I might be limiting myself still. Like when I declared a goal for 2022 to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. I've got eight months, seven and a half left. I have, you know, podcasts and Facebook and YouTube channels, and I coach individuals and groups, and I'm speaking in nine conferences between now and the end of the year scheduled so far. And you know, and then, and I've been on 150 podcasts 
uh, in the last six months because Angel that you met, she does that for me. And the goal is to spread that encouragement, love, opportunity. And so the change is I get bolder and I get bolder and I get more clear on how to invite. I just was on a call right before this com- uh, conversation here with a fellow that I've only met once. And I was describing to him, not the NDE, but his own language, like he was talking about his day. And I spoke back to him language and helped him see the limiting nature of language and how he was describing his own experience with with life, his business, his wife, his kids, and, and proposed different language very boldly and said, what if you said this, what if you said that? And the hour that we spent together, he, you could almost see the energetic space around him expand in terms of, holy crap, look at this possibility. And so those things develop in my ability to use the things I've learned and to say them in the right way at the right second is growing as, you know, as I assimilate, process, whatever, this stuff. Has the memory of this experience faded over the years or is it still as real today as it was the day it happened? It's really difficult for me to talk about this without weeping. The, the clarity and power of those experiences. Like I was in the hospital for a month. Uh, after I came out of the coma, they gave me you know, drugs because of uh, uh, healing and a lot of pain that was going on in me. And so I had some weird hallucinations that were dark and paranoid. And, you know, those were scary and everything else. But they were so different. The, the detail, the clarity, the feeling, the elevation, the power, they're written in fire and steel. It's great to ask you this because you're a musician. While you were on the other side, did you happen to hear anything else besides God's voice, sounds, or did you notice anything else of your, with your senses besides what you saw, or did you notice smells or anything? The room that uh, on the other side of the door where God was standing was white. There was a sense of overwhelming peace, order, serenity, purpose, organization. I did not hear uh, music although it wouldn't have surprised me if I had. Uh, I wasn't hearing any ambient noise, uh, although I'm sure there was all kinds of frantic crap going on in the room where I was. I mean, a person dies and they're laying there dead. You know, they jump up on your chest and they do all kinds of stuff, right? And so all of that was going on, but I didn't hear, touch, feel, or be aware of any of that. Um, I remember the door jam. So I was leaning on the door jam, and it felt like I was leaning on a door jam. As you were leaning on the door jam, I'm assuming that was a closed door. It was open. Oh, it was, it was a doorway. Open. Oh, okay. And like you know, door like this, and there's the you know the trim that goes around the door. I'm kind of leaning on this trim, and on the other side, God was leaning on that trim. We're just kind of like across the door, and the doorway is you know like four inches wide. And I'm on this side, and he's on that side, and there I, there wasn't an actual door; it was just a doorway. Hmm. So, at least if there was, I didn't see the door. Okay. So, how did God appear to you, like a being of light, or just a ball of light, or what? It, it appeared to be a person. <clears throat> it appeared to have, 
you know, and people can say whatever they want to about that. It was clear that it was calm, peaceful, powerful, infinite, kind, love, gracious, every word that you can attribute to the divine. As it occurred in my consciousness, it was a person. The mouth moved, it spoke, he spoke, it appeared to be. Someone's asked me about gender a bunch of times, and I don't remember seeing a you know, an old dude with a beard. I don't remember that. I call it he because I've always addressed God as Heavenly Father, although I assume he's, there's a Heavenly Mother as well because I don't have any illusion that there's anything except complete partnership there. But it appeared to be God. I didn't see an old white dude with a beard, but it did appear to be a person. Well, maybe just like the movie Contact, God appeared to you in a way that was comfortable for you. It could well be that. The glory was unmistakable. The power was understated but infinite. And the peace, there was no, no, there was no such thing as worry or time or anything. Have you had any negative after effects since your experience besides physical stuff? There was something that happened six months later. That wasn't negative, but was clearly related. Well, it was sort of negative. If you if you want to religionize this, and you say God appeared and gave me permission, power, mission, you know, direction, whatever. After I chose to stay, if you view in the context of good and evil, there was an experience in December on December fifth that was evidence of opposition. So what happened on the morning of December 5th, for the last weeks of November and the beginning of December, I'd been having really bad back pain. This is in the context of me trying to learn to walk and walking again, and I could walk down the street and things like that, and started having really bad back pain. On December 5th, I woke up and tried to get out of bed and fell on my face. And then I tried to get up my hands and knees and fell on my face, and it became quickly clear that I was paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, I couldn't move. And so we called... I crawled across the room on my arms like army crawl and kind of made my way down the stairs face first the same way with Joy helping me and my legs were useless. And finally we called 911 and they came to get me and simply no explanation. I was in terrifying pain, paralyzed from the waist down with no explanation. On the way to the hospital, <clears throat> uh, they put me in the ambulance and I, that's the only time I ever rode the hospital in an ambulance. They, wrote, they put me in the ambulance to go to the hospital and I had a, a vision uh, the vision was like a poker tournament, like, you know, the World Series of Poker in those rooms that are kind of purpley black with all the lights and stuff, kind of like our backgrounds, about that color. And there was a table, and I was sitting at a table, and chips in front of me, and there were some people. And then I noticed right across from me was another person, and it was uh, the Grim Reaper in full regalia, like there, and cold. And then uh, the, the other people... Around the table just sort of faded, and it was like, yeah, here we are. And I didn't look at my cards, but all of a sudden Reaper leaned down and did that motion that's like all in, and it was really slow, like all the chips <laughs> on the table. And it was horrifying. And I looked at him, and I thought, okay, when you might say when your adversary raises the stakes, but the words that came to me is when the adversary raises the stakes, what do you do? And, I, and then it came to me as well, 
When your adversary, when the adversary raises stakes, you have two choices. You fold or you call. And so I was in pain. I was weeping, and I raised my hand up on the stretcher and slammed it down as hard as I could and screamed at the top of my lungs in the ambulance, then I call, right? And then the whole thing evaporated. And as it turned out, they took me to the hospital. They took me from the ER emergency room to the operating room, like immediately after they did MRIs and stuff. And what happened was the necrotizing uh, lethal bacteria hadn't been completely eradicated by the antibiotics last time. And it had moved and settled in my spinal column and caused an abscess from C2 to T1 which is about four inches long, and it had solidified and was putting pressure on my spinal column uh, way up here at T1, which is the top of the transverse vertebrae, and that's why I was paralyzed. And the MRI revealed that, and the surgeon did a laminectomy and uh, told me when I had the stitch, I was in the hospital about from the 5th to the 14th, so nine days, and then I walked out and when I had the stitches out on the 19th, um, the doctor told me, he shook his head and he said, you know, I can count on less than one hand the number of people that have come into the hospital like you did and then walked out under their own power. And he said, I just, I can't explain it. And so then to make sure it was dead, I had to carry a bag and a pump for six weeks and they had to put a pick line in, which is an internal catheter. They stick it into a big vein under your arm, and it goes all the way across and drips in your heart mm. because the power of the antibiotics they put in were so concentrated that if you put it in veins, it would collapse all your veins. So it had to go into directly into the heart because that's the only place where there's enough blood flowing to keep it from trashing your stuff. So I carried that for six weeks, and so what was... One other piece of that, and that was I had to go pick up these bags on Tuesdays and Fridays. And when I went in to get the first one, uh, that was not in the hospital but across the street at the hospital pharmacy. And I went in to, to get that first bag, and I waited in line. I got up to the nurse, and I said to her, uh, Hi, I'm Kel. And I didn't even get my name said. And she looked at me and said, Oh, we know who you are. Mm. And I said, What are you talking about? And because this had been, you know, five months since the other stuff. And she said, oh, yeah, we know. And I thought, holy crap. So anyway, there was something about the whole thing that even the doctors and nurses and hospital staff knew about months later. And um, that effort, if you will, of the forces of opposition was clear, was present, and frankly terrifying um and so that yeah that happened in december what do you think inspires you the most about your experience what inspires me the most is connected to what happened 10 years earlier when i was given a, an invitation to change my life and handle the depression that had ruined my life for the first of 52 uh, from, I left home at 17. From 17 to 52, those 35 years, I never talked to anybody. I never got help. I lived a roller coaster of money and big position and marriages and divorces and rehab, and it was a, just a disaster. So what, what inspires me most about it is a connection. 
And that is, it is clear to me there is no length to which it's the worth of every single person. There's no length to which the divine does not go to offer the invitation to be who you can be. There seems to be a, one of the ground rules is they're not going to make anybody do, God's not going to make anybody do anything. But the invitation, uh, it's just the, the amount of love, patience, you know, offering us the invitation to be all that we can be inspires me beyond my ability to describe Earlier, you mentioned divine gifts. Do you have any tips for my audience on how to discover their own divine gift? Yeah. Number one, everything. We we are best and happiest as people when we love and serve each other. So everything that you think about in the context of divine gifts is in the context of serving others. Like what kinds of things do you like to do that bless and lift those people around you? And that might be gifts in music. It might be writing. It might be speaking. It might be how well you dig ditches. It, it is. It is not like some gifts are not valued in the context of our world framework. Like people don't pay a lot of money for those that mow lawns and maybe they should, but there is a pride and a power that accompanies the use of those things. You feel good. So what things do you feel good doing, especially in the context of service and lifting and blessing, even our chemistry when we love and serve people, The neurotransmitters that are released make us feel good. When we're angry and bitter and frustrated, the chemical cocktail makes your stomach shrivel and your body tense. And there's a book written by some doctor called Anger Kills, and he did a long study and found that people who live with a lot of anger die five or six or seven years earlier on average. And so, number one, think about gifts in the context of serving others. Number two, ask yourself and people that know you. What do they think your gifts are? And pay attention. Number three, consider your suffering. The, the things you have struggled with. I can tell you my dark years, dark decades, are all turned to my benefit because struggling with the things that I did has given me an empathy and understanding that I could have had in no other way. So the trials, struggles, injustices, understand, look for how they are gifts and can turn to the benefit of those you serve. And number four, develop your uh, connection, however you conceptualize it to the universe or the divine. Like, look for the connection. And don't wait until, oh, I have perfect clarity. Now I know what it is. Now I can go to work. Get to work now. Move in the direction it seems like it is. My clarity was refined by action. It isn't clarity first, then action later. This thing happened after I'd been busting my butt for 10 years. After I was given the invitation to change my life. I said yes, and then I launched out having no idea what to do and had been working on it for 10 and a half years, trying to be the best person I could be and help others and coach and do all those kinds of things. And then 
Since you were already a coach before your experience, what did you change in your coaching strategy afterwards? The thing I changed most profoundly is absolutely no fear about talking about the divine invitations that we all feel, the intuitions, the pull. Before it used to be like, well, you know, maybe somebody's going to be offended by spiritual crap. I don't know. And I try to suss out, screw all that. It's going to offend you if I talk about the spiritual inclinations and pull and yearnings that you felt in your life. Whether you've ignored them or accepted them, I don't care. Then we don't have a lot to talk about. Also, you were talking about how we have this kind of like straight jacket around us, I guess, due to our beliefs. Can you give us some tips on how to break out of that? Yeah, read the book of context. That's the whole framework, but I'll summarize some of it for you. You believe what you believe— so do I, because of that BD, beliefs, definitions, experiences, expectations, and perceptions. Like whatever's happened to you, whoever's treated you, taught you, whatever has happened to you, whoever's done whatever they've done, external circumstances, bad things have happened, good things have happened, all that crap stirs in a soup, and it hardens around you in your straitjacket. Right, and So that's how you believe the world works. It's what you believe you're worth, what you can do, what you're capable of, how much money you can make, what you deserve, all that stirred into this pot, right? And uh, it is what it is. So changing your beliefs is not about, okay, I need to fight with this context straightjacket and struggle. There's a game you can play. So when you when, pick a given situation, uh, you have to give a talk or you have a sales job and you have to make a certain number of calls or it doesn't matter what it is. Somewhere where you feel inhibited, pulled back, scared, like, oh, crap, I can't. Oh. When you have that feeling, that, that's a clue right there. Ding. You're, you're, you're pressing against your context straitjacket. That's what the fear is. It is the chafing of that jacket. Okay, cool. So no drama here. No blame. Just notice. Okay, dang, I'm being held back by the straitjacket. Like, is anybody going to kill me if I make a phone call or introduce myself at a networking meeting or stand up and speak in public? Yeah, nobody's going to kill me. Okay. Then this dance is in my mind. Hmm, how interesting. So the whole thing is without drama. So then you get a piece of paper and you say, what do I believe? And again, this is hard when you're in the judgment mode because if you write down... You know, I believe that I'll screw up. Let's talk about speaking in public, for example, uh, or asking someone out or whatever. I believe I'll screw up and they'll be mad at me and then I'll, they'll hate me forever and they'll throw tomatoes at me and I'll shrivel up and die. You know, just what do you believe right now? And you can play with it, but you have to be able to look at it and speak it out loud and have it like hit you. Oh, crap. I do. I believe all that. Really? Dang. I believe that. It, no harm, no foul. Just what do you believe that gives this straitjacket its power? What are you thinking? What are you believing? Because the feelings that you have, fear and, you know, wanting to shrivel up and inadequacy and all those feelings, they come from believing a thought. I'll give you an example. If you see a blob on the desk and you believe it is a piece of candy, you have a certain set of 
reactions. Either maybe you like that candy or maybe you hate it, but it's based on you believing it is a piece of candy. If you look at that same object and you believe it is a piece of C4 and it's going to blow up, you have a completely different reaction. And so which literally chemistry, the feeling of your body, clenching of the stomach, the adrenaline released, all that stuff comes from believing a thought. So when you look at your beliefs, the fun thing to do is what am I believing? What am I thinking? What thought am I believing or thoughts that, that gives it this power? Uh, you know, again, back to speaking, you start walking toward the stage and your stomach clenches up and you start sweating. Like what thought are you, I believe, I'm thinking I'll screw up, I'll stumble, I'll fall down, I'll forget my lines, I'll say something stupid, they'll laugh at me. The last person in the world I want to be here will be on the third row. You know, what thoughts are you believing? And identifying those is just part one. Okay, cool, that's what I believe, here's the list. The next thing is, okay, what else could I believe? I'm not saying you do, we're not fighting with it here. You believe this pile of stuff, okay, fine. What else could I believe? And if that's too difficult, ask, change the question a little and say, what else could someone else believe? What does someone else believe about this very same circumstance? Well, I know so-and-so. They believe this is easy and they could just walk up here and do it. And they believe this and this and this. And everybody's going to laugh at their jokes and everybody's going to... Okay, cool. So now I have a set of things that I do believe that give me this feeling. I have a set of other things I could believe. Or if I can't do that, a set of beliefs someone else could have. Then step three is to say, okay, if I believed, if I believed this, I don't, but if I did, what would I do? So making phone calls, prospecting for clients, whatever your business is. <clears throat> if I believed that everybody liked me, then I'd pick up the phone and call them. Okay, I don't. I believe this stuff over here, and that's why I don't, and I'm scared of it, and I put it off, and I hate it. I got that. But if I did... Well, then it'd be no big deal. I'd pick it up and make the call. Okay, cool. So now we know what you believe, what you could believe, and what you do if you believe that. <clears throat> We're not, again, <clears throat> trying to change your beliefs. We're going to play a game. And the game is, let's just experiment with one of these beliefs. We're not trying to change it. I know I'd make this phone call if I believed they liked me. All right, are you willing to just try it and see what would happen? We're not arguing with the beliefs. We'll just see. And then you take an action based on that belief that you don't have, but just that's what I would do if I believed that. Okay, cool. If I was Superman or Supergirl or Spot, Mr. Spock or whoever, then I would do that. Okay, fine. And when you play that game, two things happen. There's nothing at stake because you're just playing a game. It's just an experiment. Okay, when you do it from a place of belief, then you have these whole pile of baggage. Forget all that. You're just playing a game and you're going to see what happens. And when you take actions from the point of view of playing a game, the baggage is gone. Very often you get an unexpected result. Like what you thought might happen doesn't. Right. And when you start accumulating unexpected results just by playing the game without fighting with the beliefs and carrying that baggage, you then have a pile of unexpected results. Then you have the opportunity to look and say, hmm, there could be some other way to think about this. And so you arrive at that possibility. 
So that's a long, complicated explanation. The short version is doubt your doubts. Understand that you believe what you believe because of a set of old experiences. That's the past. They're true. There's nothing you can do about them. But they don't determine the future unless you let them. So the question, doubting your doubts and asking yourself, what else could I believe, is a, is a powerful place to start. And treat it as a game. Like there's no drama unless you want there to be. Drop the drama and just play with doubting the doubts and experimenting with what else. What else is possible in a light way, experimenting so you're not carrying the baggage with you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. I'm getting close on running out of time. So you said you wrote 16 books. And can I you, have. Are they, are they all on Amazon? Most of them are. Most of them are on Amazon. The last one I wrote, uh, Forgiveness, A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power, is not up yet. I wrote a five-volume series on meditation. Three of those are up. And the other two are not yet. Um, but most of them are. If you People ask all the time, how can we find you? And the answer is when you got a weird name like Kellen Flukiger, mm -hmm. I can't hide. Yeah. So as long as you spell my name right, you can find me on Google and Amazon and Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and anywhere you want. I can't hide. So are all those places like KevinFlukiger.com or Kevin Flukiger on YouTube? Kellen. Kellen, I'm sorry. Kellen Flukiger, the name of my podcast is Your Ultimate Life. The name of my YouTube channel is Ultimate Life Formula. But if you put in Kellen Flukiger in Amazon, books come up, music comes up. If you Google me, then there's a bunch of crap from my old executive years and then all the website. My, na my website is my name. And, you know, unsurprisingly, getting my website was real easy. There was no competition. Yeah. $2, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have anything else you're working on that you want us to know about? Yeah. I wrote Tightrope of Depression, which is the first volume telling about my story through depression. I wrote volume two. I didn't intend for it to be more than one thing. Then I realized it's just getting started. So I wrote volume two called Down from the Gallows. Volume three, which is the conclusion of what I promise will only be a trilogy, will be out in February of next year. The thing that's fun is I wrote an album of music with each of those. Hmm that have songs that tell stories from the book. Cool. And the first two albums are done. One of them's up with my distributor, so it's on iTunes and Spotify and everything. The second one's done, and it's not up yet, but it will be. So there's a whole bunch of music that is companion to the books in terms of telling stories. All right, Kellen, well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? You bet your life. Love is the most powerful word in the world. I don't care how dark it is. I don't care what's happened to you. I don't care how many bad things are in your past. It's never, ever, ever too late to have a big impact, to find and live into your divine gifts, to have joy in your life. It's not a thing over there after you do a bunch of stuff. You can have joy here today, and you're worth every effort. So that would be my final message of love and positivity. Thank you for that message. And Kellen, thank you again for being my guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Thank you for having me. And I hope your listeners had fun. All right. Take care. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast.
I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.